Welcome to Chapter 2 of Classics and Coffee. My name is Matthew, and I'm sitting here with Juliet. Hi. And we are getting ready to talk about our second book of Season 1. And we decided, since after the first episode, we titled it Chapter 1, The Great Gatsby. Every episode after this will be entitled Chapter Whatever. So for this season, we'll have Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And before we get going talking about our book selection today we have to mention the coffee that we're drinking and what coffee is that? So we're drinking Friele um, and we got it from Norway because a lovely friend of ours decided to bring us some as well as a bunch of good candy and some really bad candy too but we don't talk about it. Well there was no marzipan <laughs> and no licorice so we're all good. We did get some non-stops and some quick lunch and Juliet got her trail mix which she is very <laughs> happy about. So today's book is a book that I never read when I was going through my kind of educational career. I did very little, of course, during 1800s, so 19th century British literature. But Juliet chose Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre for us to read and discuss today. And, you know, I wasn't really sure about that. I'd been to Haworth before when we were in Norway with some students. And I haven't read the Brontes before then, but going to Haworth, I really wanted to read more. And this is actually my second or third book that I've read by the Brontes. I got most of the way through Wuthering Heights, and I almost finished Agnes Grey, but it got really, really boring. So I just put it down, which is really short. But I was really pleased and engaged with Jane Eyre. And this, of course, like I said, is Juliet's choice. This is her first choice for this for this season. And we got to start off with that question of why did you choose this book? I think one of, well, it is my favorite book, and I think that's one of the reasons that I chose it. Um, and it's just very conflicting in many different ways, and there's also a lot of things about social mobility, especially in there too, which are kind of interesting, and women during that time period, as well as a bunch of other things that you're going to talk about later too, but those were things that I did not realize. So why are you really conflicted about this book? Because I know the things that you read and how you are. And a lot of people read this book kind of as a feminist text. Except for at the end, of course, she ends up with Rochester. So that kind of problematizes it some. But if you look at it from the way that I've kind of started looking at it, it doesn't problematize it. So why are you conflicted with Jane? Because she is very headstrong, but she also ends up with Rochester. I think it's basically what you said in the beginning, because she's very headstrong, but she also ends up with him. And he's not... See, I sort of viewed it as a... Like, not a Romeo and Juliet situation, but you know how Juliet never came in contact with, like, any other men other than, like, Romeo? Other than, like, having to marry, like... Was it Tybalt or Paris? Which one was not the cousin? I think it was Paris. Okay. Tybalt's killed. Having to marry Paris. And so I think one of the things was because she never had contact with any man outside of her life other than like her cousin and like the head of Lowood. So basically she comes here and she pretty much, it just, and it made me really mad because he's just, he's very manipulative. Am I allowed to curse? He's an asshole, um, and he's just not, he's not a really good person. So even though she, it is viewed as a feminist novel, and I do think that she is very much a feminist, and Charlotte Bronte wrote a very progressive book for her time, the ending does make me mad. But at the same time, she has a right to make her own decisions. And 
so here's the question. There's a couple of questions off of that. And number one is, is Rochester the only bad male character in this novel? No. Because, I mean, Brocklehurst I'm not really going to talk about, but what about St. John? St. <laughs> John Rivers is basically the same exact thing as Rochester, just in a different version. Yeah. He's, I mean, they're both psychologically manipulative. And she chooses, right? Yeah. You know, even with Rochester, she says, I'm going to marry you. And then... They go inside, and then they have the wedding, and there's all the news about Bertha, which we need to talk about Bertha, but then she says, I'm leaving you, and he pleads with her, but she chooses to do so on her own, right? She yeah. chooses to marry him on her own, and then even with St. Um, John, she chooses to not go with him, and she says, hey, I'm not going to go and be your wife. You want me to marry you? I'm not going to be your wife. I'll go as your sister, because we're related, right? Yeah. So it's not just Rochester that's kind of manipulative in here. It's a lot of characters, but if you go through it, Brocklehurst is basically the guy who runs Lowood. Rochester is, and then St. John. And one kind of side note, as I read this, one thing I thought about, and I meant to look up the characters' names, I thought about um, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God, which is an African-American novel from the 1930s which about Janie Crawford, told in her voice, it's first person. And there's a couple of reasons I thought about it. One is reading an essay by Alice Walker. She talks about reading Jane Eyre and not hearing her voice, right? She talks about the Brontes. And in that essay, she's also talking about reading Zora Neale Hurston and hearing her voice and seeing herself mirrored within Janie, right? So a black female strong character. And Janie makes her own decisions. But throughout that novel, she goes through, if I remember correctly, three or four relationships with men. And each relationship, she, the first one she doesn't choose. Her grandmother sets her up with this old guy, basically. The second one, I don't remember if she marries a minister. I don't think she does. The second one, she marries a guy who goes to become the mayor of Eatonton. Um, Eatonville, sorry. The stand-in for Eatonville in the novel, an all-black town. And he just wants her to look pretty, right? And then she doesn't marry Tea Cake at the end, but she, they become lovers and partners, basically. And he dies at the end. But it's her choice, and that's the most fulfilling relationship she's had. So I see kind of the progression in Jane Eyre. I see kind of Jane in connection with Janie a little bit. Within kind of these connections, that's a whole other discussion. So... What are some things you've told me before that there are things in this novel that, as we deal with The Great Gatsby, that you noticed that I didn't notice, and there's things that I noticed that you didn't notice? So what are some things that kind of stood out to you? Or why is this... You kind of answered a little bit why it's your favorite novel, but is Jane one of your favorite characters? Oh, that's a tough one. I do... I, I like Jane a lot. And I think I can see, I feel like a lot of, um, or I feel like I could see myself as her a little bit, but not, like, in some parts. But at the same time, I don't think she's my favorite. How could you see yourself as her at some parts? Because she knows what she wants, and as you said, she chooses what she wants. Now, even though my conflicted of the ending of me not really being happy as the reader of her choice that doesn't mean that she still didn't have the opportunity to choose and she chose you know 
and so not letting other people control your life or letting other people tell you what to do you know so there's one thing that's very interested in me when I read this book and well actually lean back up before we get to that other thing <laughs> one one of the things that I really was thinking about when we read this was this isn't the earliest novel I mean the novel kind of originated in the 18th century and I'm more familiar with early American novels and those heroines who fall into these traps of a rake and a scoundrel who basically cheats them and they die like at the end right so it's this kind of these warnings about women going down the wrong path and falling for people and they don't most of it's not of their own agency but one of the threats of these novels is women reading books mm -hmm. and women educating themselves and doing that or actually at this point sorry women reading books for pleasure and those sending them down the path of you know sex and death and destruction and what kind of struck me was this book opens with her reading and she's reading of course a guide of birds but she's reading the family she's staying with who are her relatives take the books from her and say you know those are our books you can't read them and she sequesters herself kind of in this tent or something it seems like kind of like a pillow fort and she's reading right so, like, this whole kind of discussion, I think, of reading and books is really interesting in this thing. But then also this confinement, because where does she go when they chastise her? Where do they send her? Is it the Red Room? They send her to the Red Room, right? Yeah. And what about the Red Room? I mean, how many times in this novel do you see her being confined? A lot. Yeah, so, so what, what are some of those? The Red Room is one, and she references it again and again. So here's my question, too. Could this confinement also be a symbolism of women during this period? I would say, yeah. I mean, it's a symbolism of she doesn't have anywhere to go. There's two references, too, when I was looking back over it. She talks about herself being in fetters or in cage, and then Rochester says that you're in a cage. And then, of course, what's the quote that you have actually on your mug? <laughs> I'm no bird, and no net ensnares me. Right. So she's talking to Rochester at that point, right? That's when they get engaged. Am I yeah. right about that? And she says, I am no bird, no net ensnares me. So she's talking about breaking free from the cage. And the cage is always a powerful metaphor for actually being entrapped, right? And then even think about Thornfield. And Bertha? Well, oh. yeah. So what about Bertha? So Bertha's the as um i forgot their names but the, the women who wrote the mad woman in the attic um susan gilbert and uh, what are their names it's right here or Sa sandra gilbert and and susan gubar sorry they're with the mad woman in the attic and in their essay they're talking about bertha being a manifestation of jane so when she goes up in there it's kind of her other self right mm -hmm. and she's trapped there and grace Poole takes care of her so was it kind of like what would happen if she had, like, the inability to escape? Or did she even escape, is the question. Well, I mean, both of those questions are kind of feasible, right? Yeah. So if you look, too, there are these references to mirrors where she looks at herself and she sees a reflection. There's one early on where she looks in the red room and she sees herself and she looks ghastly, she says. She looks different. She doesn't recognize herself. Then there's discussions of mirrors later, but birth is kind of an embodiment and one reading of 
Jane and another side of her, right? And which side's going to win? At the end, Bertha kills herself. She jumps off, right? After yeah. she burns it. And if you think about the moments where she comes up, so Jane goes up to the third floor. She goes out to the place where Bertha's going to jump off when she goes to Thornfield, right? Yep. When she's going to get married, Bertha comes in and burns the veil. She attacks Mr. Mason, right? There's all these instances where something's happening with Jane that Bertha kind of comes in and does, and she's keeping him, she's trying to keep her from marrying Rochester, yeah, but you can also think about it partly for Psyche. Which makes me think you haven't read it yet either, but um, Charlotte Gilman Perkins' The Yellow Room, which is a different story, but that kind of confinement and that madness. Isn't that the one that we talked about with Coco Chanel? I think it was, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, not the yellow room, the yellow wallpaper. Oh, my God. Yeah, I think that Coco Chanel, like, wanted... Didn't she like that story or something? I think maybe, because I think we mentioned it, and then they mentioned it on the podcast, like, right after. Right, she wanted yellow wallpaper or whatever. And she loved, like, peeling wallpaper and stuff like that. Right, which which is what the woman in the yellow yellow wallpaper does. She's suffering from postpartum depression. There's one reading of that and other things, too, right? So... This kind of thing about being confined, I think, is really important in this novel. And if you think about, too, the progression, she goes from, is it Gateshead? Is that the first one? She goes from Gateshead to Lowood to um, Thornfield. Thornfield, and then to, I forgot the, the last one, but the Moors, basically, right? Yeah. White Cross or whatever, I don't remember, but the family. But she's going to confined spaces. She's not leaving and traveling anywhere. And then if you look at it that way, at the end, she travels. They go to Ferndale or whatever that is, right? That's where they end up. But she's confined in different ways in either of these spaces. And in the first space, she's confined by, with Mr. Brocklehurst, or sorry, in Lowood. What is she confined by? Because this is the other thing that kind of struck me that I was really interested in. Like, what do you mean, what is she confined by? So, what is Lowood? Lowood is pretty much a boarding school for girls. So Lowood's a boarding school for girls. Yeah. Mr. Brocklehurst isn't there. He's a minister, right? Yeah. And St. John Rivers, who's the guy at the end, who's her cousin, yeah. is also a minister. So she's confined by the Bible, for one, or the Christian teachings from Brocklehurst, right? Mm-hmm. And how's everybody treated at Lowood? <laughs> Not well. No. And then he's living well, right? Yeah. Or at least comfortable. Yet, he's not supporting the girls that are there in that boarding school. And then everybody right. dies of tuberculosis. Right. Which, well, typhoid. Oh, typhoid. I think it was typhoid. Was it typhoid? I think so. Because it reminded me of Howarth. Because the water, there's a section where yeah. she talks about the water running down and getting into the drinking water from the graves and typhoid infecting the drinking water, which is what happened at Howarth. Okay. So that's really kind of a reference to that. But... If you think about it, and then remember even before she kind of even gets there, when she's at Gateshead and Brocklehurst comes over and Brocklehurst interrogates her, do you remember when she talks about the the Bible? This is the first thing I mentioned, do you remember? And she said, Brocklehurst asked her kind of what books of the Bible she reads. Do you remember what books Jane reads? Did you say Revelation? So, Not Revelations, it was Daniel and Galatians. So this is what Jane says. Brocklehurst says, do you read your Bible? Sometimes. With pleasure? Are you fond of it? And this is Jane. I like Revelations in the book of Daniel, and Genesis and Samuel, and a little bit of Exodus, and some parts of the Kings and Chronicles and Job and Jonah. 
And the Psalms? I hope you like them. No, sir. <laughs> those are really interesting kind of books because those are Revelation and Daniel are both apocalyptic books. Genesis and Samuel, Exodus deal with Old Testament kind of kings and rulers and, you know, different things. Exodus, of course, with the um, Jews coming out of Israel, or sorry, out of Egypt, right? Yep. So, and then Job and Jonah. <laughs> so they're really kind of apocalyptic prophetic books to a certain extent, right? And then there's other kind of references throughout. And then when I get to the end, he's talking about... St. John quotes Revelation to her, which we'll talk about later. But I found it really interesting. There's all these Christian discussion. Because even think about what's at the what's in the gate at Lowood. So in the gate at Lowood, this is what it says. Lowood Institution. This portion was rebuilt A.D. by Naomi Brocklehurst of Brocklehurst Hall in this county. Let your light, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5:16, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Jane says, I read these words over and over again. I felt that an explanation belonged to them and was unable fully to penetrate their import. So they have Matthew 5:16 on the institution wall that let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Yet there's no explanation. And how do they treat her? <laughs> like? Right. And that's, like, one of the things, too, am I, like, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, but I think that's one of the things, too, that I hate, is people who go around and they're acting, like, and they claim themselves to be Christians and they pretty much do, like, what you said, um, or claim, like, what Matthew 5.16 you said was, mm-hmm. um, and then they turn around and they treat people like crap and belittle them and hate them and do not love them as you're supposed to love them so do you want to expand on that a little bit do you see that elsewhere in this book (laughs) would we talk about saint john in that case well what about saint john his like (laughs) you can talk about it because you were talking to me earlier about imperialism and well let's let's hold off on that but what but what about what about saint john i mean he also, like, he's just also not a great. So, how does he even come to that? How does she come to that house? So she flees from Rochester, right? And she becomes destitute. Remember? And she's going from house to house, looking for money, looking for a job, and she ends up at their house. And they find out they're related. Well, no. She asks later. They find out. Yeah. She she knocks on the door, asks the woman for help. And the woman doesn't help her. I think it's Hannah, right? Mm-hmm. And then she basically lays there on the front stoop of the house. And then who comes and lets her in? Is it? And St. John comes by and lets her in. Oh. Okay. So she's shunned at the door, right? So they're not showing her hospitality. And when she's become part of the house or early on, this is what she says. And this stood out to me, not just for this book, but I think it's kind of a profound thing. That she says. So this is what Jane says. The house was full of fragrance of new bread and the warmth of a generous fire. Hannah was baking. And then this is what stood out to me. Prejudices, it is well known, are most difficult to eradicate from the heart whose soil has never been loosened or fertilized by education. They grow there firm as weeds among stones. 
Hannah had been cold and stiff, indeed, at the first. Latterly, she had begun to relent a little, and when she saw me come in tidy and well-dressed, she even smiled. That whole comment about prejudices it is well known are most difficult to eradicate from the heart whose soil has never been loosened or fertilized is a profound statement. And then she comes later when she's actually talking to Hannah. And then Hannah says, you must not think too hardly of me. And then this is Jane replying, but I do think hardly of you. And I'll tell you why. Not so much because you refuse to give me shelter or regarded me as an imposter, as because you just now made it a species of reproach that I had no brass and no house. Some of the best people that ever lived have been as destitute as I am. And if you are a Christian, you ought not consider poverty a crime. So what do you make of that? I mean, it sort of reflects how sometimes, like as people, we often turn our backs away from people who need help the most. And as you said, poverty is a crime, sort of how when people aren't doing well, are in desperate need of help, we sometimes think it's their fault. Like, it's their problem. They have to deal with it. They don't, like... If they got themselves in that situation, they can get themselves out, you know? Instead of actually doing what the Bible says, at least in this sense, and turning and actually helping them. Well, I was just seeing some things today about officers in Texas fining people for feeding the homeless, right? So for fining people who are unhoused, they're ticketing them. Wait, what? Yeah. So wait, what does? Wait, can you elaborate on this, please? I haven't dug into it too much, but there, I think it was in Dallas. There was individuals who had been feeding the unhoused for a while, and then they were saying that officers had been ticketing them because it's against the law to feed them, right, or to provide food. Why is it against the law? What the? I don't know the Texas law, so I haven't looked at. Oh my gosh. But what does that say, right? And then, even thinking about that quote that she says about prejudices are hard to eradicate. You know, there's a lot here. This is, this isn't connected, of course, to the novel, but there's a lot, I think, kind of profound things here. And that leads me to kind of this other discussion because one of the pushbacks against this novel at the time was that it was not anti-Christian, but very against Christianity, I guess. I mean, I guess that would make it anti-Christian. So like it wasn't anti-Christian, but it, it showed the truth within the church. Is right. that what you're saying? Not necessarily within the church. But I mean, within well, the people of the church. Yeah, one of the criticisms was that it was very bad against Christianity. And this is a review from Elizabeth Rigby of the Quarterly Review in December 1848. I just want to read you a couple of quotes here. and Actually, Charlotte Bronte addresses these in the prologue a little bit, um, at least some of the early criticisms. So this is what Rigby says, and I just kind of want to read you this paragraph. We have said that this was the picture of a natural heart. This, too, our view, is the great and crying mischief of the book. Jane Eyre is throughout the personification of an unregenerate and undisciplined spirit. The more dangerous to exhibit from that prestige of principle and self-control, which is liable to dazzle the eye too much, for it is to observe the inefficient and unsound foundation on which it rests. It is true Jane does right and exerts great moral strength. But it is the strength of a mere heathen mind, which is a law unto itself. No Christian grace is perceptible upon her. She has inherited in fullest measure the worst sin of our fallen nature, the sin of pride. Jane Eyre is proud, and therefore she is ungrateful too. This is what stood out. 
not just the pride thing, which I'm going to ask you about, but this right here. It pleased God to make her an orphan, friendless and penniless, yet she thinks nobody, at least of all him. It is by her own talents, virtues, and courage that she is made to attain the summit of human happiness. And as far as Jane Eyre's own statement is concerned, no one would think that she owned anything either that she owed anything either to God above or to man below. Altogether, the autobiography of Jane Eyre is preeminently an anti-Christian composition. So, first and foremost, what about her being prideful? I don't think. <laughs> I don't. Okay. I don't think she's prideful. I just think that she knows. Well, then again, I haven't read it in a year and a half, so you could definitely disagree with me on this. But she. I don't think she's prideful either. Yeah, I don't think. I definitely don't think she's prideful. I just. I think, mean, pride is being boastful and being full of yourself, and she's not that. No. Sometimes I feel like, if I remember correctly, she even, like, belittled herself. Right. I kind of thought when I was initially reading this, is this where the phrase plain Jane came from? Because there, oh. there are references to, there are references, I think, to plain Jane, but it comes a little bit later is when it comes into the vernacular. She's like, am I a machine without feelings or a bunch of these other things? Like, just no emotion, no nothing? Right. Well, all, simplistic. also her comments about her looks and all of this type of stuff, too. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a thought that was going to go ahead. And I think this could be an early trace of that. But anyways. But I, don't, I definitely don't think she's prideful. I think she just speaks for what she wants. And she knows her value and her worth as a human being in this world. And so, people just haven't given it to her. So as a woman or a young woman, is there any kind of thing where people would say that you're prideful in things that you do. I don't think you're prideful. I think you're more humble than prideful, and it's kind of bad because I think you take that humbleness from us a little bit. I, th- I do think I can be prideful sometimes, but then again, I feel like that's something that everybody... But that's not... I didn't say you <laughs> specifically. I said, have people kind of said that of you? And the reason I'm saying that is because, in this case, pride, I think, is being used to belittle her independence. It's being, it is negative no matter when it's used, but it's being used to say that, oh, she's too headstrong. She shouldn't be wanting to do this. She shouldn't be wanting to do the things on her own. She should just maintain the order because think of the second part of this. What she says is, God made her an orphan, friendless, and penniless, yet she thanks nobody, and least of all him, for making her orphan, friendless, and penniless. That she has this position. Because this is the belief, and this was something that the Puritans believed. This was the Calvinist belief. You know, that people all had their positions and station in life that God gave them. God God made you below me, right? God made you an orphan, so be thankful for it. So they're saying that, like, social mobility was, like, something that could not happen. Exactly, because God placed you in a specific position. You have to adhere to that position. And so they, that is that one of the things that they're criticizing against? Is because, like, even though the way that she ended up, I guess you could say socially climbing up the ladder was through marrying Rochester. She still ended up with that. Well, she didn't. Yeah, she didn't end up by marrying Rochester. She ended up with it by her family money that she got, right? Okay. Because she could have married Rochester and moved up, but she didn't do that. She got family money, one of those kind of novelistic twists, you know, that, Uh, oh, well, there was money here. Yeah. Okay. When they got the letter. So even that argument, and I think this may have come up before the last volume, but still. But still, even that kind of thing of, you're in this position, you should accept it. And if you don't, if you want to be your own woman, then you're prideful. That's kind of what I was asking you is, 
have you ever experienced something where somebody has pushed back against you because of something you wanted to do that they were like, you can't do that because you're a woman? Like, I don't think anybody has explicitly said that, but I have definitely felt in some places where that definitely can be. Um, but I mean, like, it happens. So where have you felt that? <laughs> I really don't want to go into this story. You can just... Was, yeah. You, you, you can just <laughs> summarize it. You don't have to go into detail. Well, I don't want to go into detour, detail, but it was like... A really so you know that time when I was like really interested in football yeah for like fifth and sixth grade okay so for a good bit I was really interested in it I would go outside and I'd pretty much play every day American football there. yeah American football not not um not football uh, <laughs> I should have said that not not what we call soccer and I don't know why we call it soccer but um so anyways like at school I would never play it, and you know, and sometimes I would play it, but it would sometimes feel very, like, belittling, you know, in a very, like, passive-aggressive manner. Um, and it, even though no one explicitly said anything, it felt like I was being, it felt like they felt that I was being too prideful because I just wanted to play a game. You know, like, I just wanted to play football. Like, I did. So, it kind of... It got better. It got a lot better and ended up being really fun. But it was it was really hard at first, you know, so it was kind of just that thing. <laughs> so did that lead to your not liking sports? No, I just, I'm, because, I'm never usually a big sports person in general. Yeah, I don't know why I liked it. Because you and your brother just have no interest in sports whatsoever, <laughs> which is fine, but y'all have no interest at all. So what about kind of that... Do you view this as anti-Christian? I mean, we, you answered that a little bit. And like I said, that was some of the criticism against this book. I don't think it's anti-Christian. I think it is... It points out the reality of Christianity, especially during that time. Not necessarily Christianity as in, like, the Bible and God's Word, but Christianity as in the people who make up that religion. That, or the religion in that case. That religion? <laughs> I don't know why I said that religion, I mean, but, like, you know. You are Christian as well, I so know. you're like... So when I said it, I was like, but I'm also a Christian. I don't know why I'd say that religion. But that make up Christianity, and so it was... It's more pointing out... I feel like it's more of a statement of pointing out, hey, this is an issue that needs to be acknowledged, and we shouldn't be acting like this, rather than an anti-Christian novel. So... Let's get to two other things kind of with that, because one of the characters that we talked about early, and you said you haven't read this in a while, but she stood out to you, was Helen. So who is Helen Burns, and what about her kind of stood out to you? Because I want to talk about her a second. She was at Lowood, remember? Yeah. And she was the girl that Jane befriended, and then she ends up dying, and Jane ends up lying in the bed with her when she dies, which was kind of a weird thing to me. There was a... I don't know if it was her... There was a what? So one of the things that she was talking about that really stood out to me, and this is something, of course, I've been thinking about too, is her focus, and she's ill, so it's kind of understandable. Her focus is on life after death, right? And not worrying about the present and not worrying about what's here. She's worried about eternity. And 
Jane is worried, of course, about the here and now. So it's this kind of dichotomy about worrying about eternity and one's soul or one's existence after life, and then about people here. And that's one of the things I think maybe it's not played out, I think, throughout. I think it is kind of underneath the surface here. But what are Brocklehurst and what are St. John Rivers, what are they worried about? Are they worried about the temporal or are they worried about the spiritual? Are they worried about the here and now or are they worried about life after death? I mean, you could say they're worried about money oh, and yeah. about power, but the way they present it is they're worried about what's going to happen to these people once they die, right? Yeah. That's why St. John Rivers goes to India. I mean, it's part of the imperialistic thing, too, but he goes to convert people. He's a missionary. That's why Brocklehurst does this, right? He wants to make sure they're raised right. And he also wants to make sure they're raised right and they actually stay in their position of okay. womanhood. I have a really weird question. So, another thing, too, is, did they also go out and, like, reach out to these people, not only maybe to save other people, but to make themselves feel uh, sort of like what you're saying, feel like, ah, I'm trying to phrase this in a way that, like, doesn't sound bad. Did Brocklehurst and St. John Rivers go out to people to do what? To make themselves feel... To feel better about themselves, you know? Like, what? did they do it in a prideful way? In, in a selfish way? Or did they do it more so in a... Feeling desperately... What do you think? People? I mean, that that's a question... I think that's an important question even for us today. Not just <laughs> yeah. with the novel, is why are people... If you're thinking about Christianity, why are people doing what they're doing, Right. Are they doing it to help, or are they doing it to bolster themselves? Are they doing it to maintain their name and their place in society, or are they doing it to... Right. So I think that's an important question that Jane Eyre can kind of get to a little bit if you look at it. And this is something I found, too, when they're talking. And they're talking... This is Helen and Jane talking, and at the end of this is where Helen talks about thinking about her, her death and eternity. But Jane says this when she's actually talking about people who have wronged her. And she says, You are good to those who are good to you. It is all I ever desire to be, is good to those who are good to you, right? Mm -hmm. And then she says, If people were always kind and obedient to those who are cruel and unjust, the wicked people would have it all their own way. So if I was just kind to these people who were treating me bad, they would still get their way, right? Mm -hmm. They would never feel afraid. And so they would never alter, but would grow worse and worse. And Helen says that that's not the way to act, right? When we are struck out without a reason, we should strike back again very hard. I am sure we should. So hard as to teach the person who struck us never to do it again. So instead of turn the other cheek, she's saying we should retaliate, right? If somebody is treating us wrong. And if you think about it, that's what she does, right? With Rochester and St. John Rivers and all these other people. I think that's kind of a profound statement, too. Because if you treat people with... If you treat them wicked people who wrong you, if you treat them nicely, they're going to do it again, and they're going to walk away from you. Because isn't there, like, also... This might be really weird to bring up, too. 
Isn't there like this thing where like Jesus chased a bunch of people out of the temple with a whip? Isn't that? How many times have you read the Bible? More than me. <laughs> I think, isn't it in like, I don't remember. He, he runs the money changers out of the temple, yeah, right? Like the tax, you know. So he shows anger. Yeah. Right? And God shows anger countless times. Right. Throughout. But what Jane's talking about is when somebody wrongs you. I mean, remember the turn your other cheek, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, there is an Wait, anger. Wait, isn't that a song? I think it, it's. I think that's Jesus. If I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, if somebody treats you bad, and if they're treating you bad to treat others bad, what should you do? I mean, this isn't in here, but one of the verses that I found that I always go back to is Isaiah ten, one and two, which is "Woe to you!" Essentially, it says this. It's not going to be a direct quote, but "Woe to you who make unjust laws," and you will be punished. Basically, is what it says, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole Jesus' first sermon is about Isaiah and the year of jubilation, or the year of jubilee, where all debts are forgiven, slaves are freed, all this stuff, right? So it's really kind of thinking of a question that is at the heart of this, too, because of the way that people treat other people in this novel is, you know, how should people be treated? What should you do? Are you actually adhering to you know, your Christian values and beliefs, or are you being a hypocrite or a Pharisee? There are multiple references in here to Pharisees <laughs> and to, you know, having unclean bowls and, un, you know, whitewashed tombs and all this type of stuff. There are all these allusions to the Pharisees and hypocrites in here. So I think that it's, I think that that's a big thread too, but kind of the last biblical thread, which I mentioned to you earlier, is dealing, you kind of hinted at it, is dealing with imperialism, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that the Brontes, if you read them, and I didn't know this, like I said, I knew about Wuthering Heights, that Heathcliff was possibly um, black or enslaved. He comes from from Liverpool, if I remember correctly, but he's very dark-skinned and all of this stuff. So there's racial elements within that you could read it. And one thing I, read, one thing I learned with the Howarth is that the Brontes were abolitionists. The Bronte kids made this kind of fantasy world that actually kind of dealt with some of these issues. And they would write the everything in such small print that their dad couldn't read it because they were just, you know, kids and trying to keep from... But there were discussions of slavery and enslavement in here too and all this type of other stuff. And as I was reading Jane Eyre, there's people who read Bertha as kind of the racialized other because she comes from the West Indies. I think she comes... She's going from Jamaica. I don't remember where she comes from. She's called Creole. Yep. And Creole in this kind of framing and discussion is somebody who is actually a settler who was born or the son or daughter of a settler who is in the New World, basically, right? That's Creole. It doesn't mean mixed race or anything like that at this time, or at least not in this context. So seeing her, I think, as racialized, you can do that because Bertha is presented very animalistically. She is othered. She is kept, you know, in the attic, all this type of stuff. But I don't see her as being racialized when I read it. And there's other reasons I don't either. But the other kind of underlying thing, too, that I was trying to look up the end of the book because St. John Rivers quotes Revelation 21 so I was finding an article, and I found an article by Thomas Tracy, which I want to quote from in a second, or talk about in a second. 
which actually deals with Britain's imperial desires and their imperialism, which I think is an underlying theme of this book if you really look at it. So one of the things I was going to say, though, is in Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, Heathcliff ends up, at the end of the story, ends up pretty much... Don't spoil it for me. Oh. Now you're good. Well, he pretty much, because you didn't finish it. No. That's your problem. That's not my problem. But um, he ends up basically taking over all of everybody's land. And so if you're saying that, you said that they're abolitionists though, right? So then why did they put... We see it abolitionist tendencies from what I remember. Okay. So then why was there, why did Emily Bronte write a story about pretty much this person who, isn't he described as like... I don't remember. It's been like so long since I read it. He's not He's not viewed in a positive light. I no. know that for a fact. And then the fact that you're saying that he was dark skin and he pretty much ended up taking over everything that the family had, like all of their family possessions, like basically waiting a 50 year long game of waiting for everybody to like die and stuff just to pretty much get these two pieces of property. Well, I mean, that could be a commentary on imperialism, too. I have to read it again to see. But if you're thinking back to Jane Eyre, this is... Like I said, I read this article earlier today, and this is what Tracy said. The imperial project is foregrounded in Jane Eyre. um, At the end, in St. John's mission to India. St. John goes to India. Mm. And one thing I noticed, too, when I read it, and Juliet was like, what? The novel ends with St. John. He is the last words in the novel from a letter that um, he writes to Jane at the end in the conclusion, which we'll get to in a second. But he is the final word in this novel, which is Jane's story. It's her autobiography. It's first person, right? But Tracy says, The Imperial Project is foregrounded at the novel's end in St. John's Mission to India, and the characters of the novel are sustained by the wealth obtained from the colonies in the form of Jane's inheritance and in Rochester's fortune, and in Bertha's fortune, right? Um, Bertha, of course, when, when Rochester marries Bertha, he gets her fortune, but they their fortunes are made in the West Indies, in the Caribbean, right, in Jamaica. So that's an important thing. And then at the end of the novel, you're bookending it with Rochester and the West Indies, and then the movement to India. Because this time period, I kind of want to read this kind of, I know this is a little bit longer, but I think it's important. Because one of the things that Tracy says is, Jane Eyre was first published in 47. It came out in three volumes. A moment of historical transition in which Britain was turning its attention away from its West Indian colonies, so where Rochester and Bertha get their money, and where Jane gets her money, and towards the colony that would become the jewel in Victoria's crown, India. The primary reason for declining British involvement in the Antilles was the unprofitability of sugar and tobacco plantation in the wake of the abolition of slavery in 1833. England abolished slavery in 1833. There are several compelling reasons to suggest that the move into India would merit considerable attention in the novel published in 1847, and so palpably concerned with colonialism as is Jane Eyre. The conquest of India was protracted and violent. Moreover, it was well publicized. As Lawrence James details in The Rise and Fall of the British Empire, this is James, the army in India fought campaigns in Burma and in Afghanistan, conquered the Sindh and Punjab. The British press gave extensive coverage to the campaigns, usually reproducing stories from local papers, official dispatches, and letters from men serving at the front. 
The securing of India's northwest frontier, a bloody and drawn-out process which occupied much of this press attention in the years leading up to the publication of Jane Eyre, was characterized by catastrophes. One of the most notable examples was the killing of almost the entire Kabul garrison of the British Army during a harrowing winter retreat through the Khyber Pass in 1838. The response to this massacre was a number of barbarous raids of reprisal in which entire villages, along with their livestock and crops, were destroyed in addition to often costly, both in terms of life and property, British military victories. That's the historical context with India and the West Indies that this novel's dealing with. So, is this a commentary on colonialism and imperialism? And I would say it is in a negative way, right? Yeah. If you think about Rochester in this context, what happens to him at the end of the novel? He gets... Or... I mean, I was going to ask too, because St. John ends up dying at the end. Right. His and last letter is that he's dying. Yeah. And then, which is pretty much the opposite of what happened with India and Britain during this time. So, the imperialism there. So, think about Thornfield. It burns. It burns, but Thornfield is always viewed in this negative kind of decrepit way, right? Yep. It's always deteriorating. It's a symbol. If we're thinking about symbols, it is a symbol of deterioration, right? And he has this other place, Ferndale. He could send Bertha there. It's out the country. All good. <laughs> right? Yeah. But Thornfield is gothic in its, in its kind of appearance and it's menacing and falling apart and crumbling and then at the end of course rochester bertha kills herself mm-hmm. so of course that she she burns thornfield down and in the process rochester loses an eye and burned and gets burned too right did he lose both thumbs yeah i think he did and then miraculously gets a sight back at the end that's a whole that made me so anyways that pissed me off too <laughs> but anyways he's the downfall of that west indies kind of moment right And then, of course, like you said, at the end, St. John has that last quote. And St. John, you know, he writes this letter to to Jane. And the last part of it quotes from Revelation. So this is what he says to Jane. These are the last words of the novel. He says, or this is what Jane says. I'm going to read the last paragraph. St. John is unmarried. He never will marry now. Himself has hitherto sufficed to the toil, and the toil draws near its close. His glorious sun hastens to its setting. The last letter I received from him drew from my eyes human tears, and yet filled my heart with divine joy. He anticipated a sure reward, his incorruptible crown. I know that a stranger's hand will write to me next, to say that the good and faithful servant has been called at length into the joy of his Lord. And why weep for this? No fear of death will darken St. John's last hour. His mind will be unclouded. He's like Helen Burns. His heart will be undaunted. His hope will be sure. His faith is steadfast. His own words are a pledge of this. This is what he says. My master, he says, has forewarned me. Daily he announces more distinctly. Surely I come quickly. And that's the quote from Revelation 22.20. And hourly I am more eagerly respond, Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's the end, right? So he dies too. So is Charlotte commenting on this is going to kick off, of course, a century of you know Britain's colonization of India? But is she making a commentary on the imperialist project? Because part of the imperialist project is to 
assimilate people to your way of being and your culture to oppress them for one to get their goods but also to assimilate them to your way of culture which means your religion your dress your talk all of the stuff and does she kind of comment that that fails or that will fail or that it's bad i think sort of because i was going to say this earlier i think she as i think Dante wants it to fail you know because even though during this time like the imperialism of India was just starting and everything. I think she wants it to die, pretty much in that sense. Yeah, I think she sees it as something that is not that is not sustainable, not good, that is unchristian. Yeah. I would say, because you are basically chaining and fettering individuals. And like I said, one of the things that's really interesting too is what kind of stood up to me was the last time she meets with Saint John, he reads to her Revelation twenty one. Which is, if I remember correctly, I have the quote here. It is where the beast, I don't think it's the Whore of Babylon, I could be wrong. But it's, um, this is Revelation 21. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. Right, so it's the beast, the Antichrist basically, right? And that's what he reads to her. I'm trying to find the passage, but that's what he reads to her the last time they meet. And if you think about the commentary on Jane, is she viewed, if she's anti-Christian, is she views the Antichrist. So because of the way she acts. So this is what it says. Now, I didn't read this beforehand, but this is what it says. For the evening reading before prayers, he selected the 21st chapter of Revelations. This is the last time they see each other, basically. It was at all times pleasant to listen while from his lips fell the words of the Bible. Never did his fine voice sound at once so sweet and full. Never did his manner become so impressive in its noble simplicity as when he delivered the oracles of God. And remember the sermon she heard earlier. She loved the way he talked when she goes to hear the sermon, but she's like, this made no sense and it was dry and wrong. That's basically what she says. And tonight that voice took a more solemn tone, that manner a more thrilling meaning. As he sat in the midst of his household circle, the May, no the May moon shining in through the uncurtained window and rendering almost unnecessarily the light of the candle on the table, as he sat there bending over the great old Bible and described from its page the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, told how God would come to dwell with men, how he would wipe away all tears from their eyes and promise that there should be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, nor any more pain because the former things were passed away. The succeeding words thrilled me strangely as he spoke them, especially as I left by the slight indescribable alteration in sound, then uttering them his eye had turned on me. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, was slowly distinctly read, the fearful, the unbelieving, etc., shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Henceforward I knew what fate St. John feared for me that she will go to hell, right? Oh. So, it's really kind of, I think... It's it, such a long way to say, I'm scared you're going to hell. Right. Repent. So this kind of, and what Tracy kind of points out is, people who read it at the time would have known these things, this kind of typology. Because this is based, and I haven't read John Bunyan's Pilgrim Pro, Pilgrim's Progress, but it's kind of based off of that a little bit. This is a Bildungsroman, which is a novel of kind of coming of age, right? A kind mm -hmm. of a lengthy coming of age thing and I think that 
there's a lot going on in this novel. It's a very thick novel. Um, but there's a lot going on that could be talked about. And one thing I would suggest, I don't want to talk about this book, but Donalyn Washington, who I'm friends with, and when I posted on Twitter that I was reading Jane Eyre, she pointed me to, to I think it's Jean Reese's, I think it's Jean, Jean Reese's book, Why Sarah Goes to Sea, which Wait, is, is basically... That, is it Reese or Rice? Uh, maybe Rice, I'm not sure. I think it's Reese. R-H-Y-S, whatever that is. Put it in the comments below. <laughs> so, the and I'm probably going to mispronounce the title too, but the, the Wide Saragasso Sea. And she was born, if I remember correctly, in... She was born in, in um, Jamaica, I believe. No, she was, she was born in Dominica, sorry. But this book, this novella, follows Bertha and follows her life in... Jamaica, because that's where this is set. From um, so it follows her life there, and kind of how enslavement and owning people, because she was an enslaver, her family was an enslaver. How that kind of affected her, and the, the effects, the psychological effects of that once slavery was abolished, and once kind of the social structures were changing, right? And that's partly kind of the thing that is argued that makes her go mad. Because there are houses here who are who are looking kind of gothic and everything too, so it's a really kind of I think a good book, and a lot of kind of historical information about that time period, and if you think about it with Tracy's comment, it gives kind of a broader context to that West Indies kind of aspect of the novel, and you have not read this book yet. I should though. It's very short. You could you could read it in just a couple of days. Did you buy it or did you rent it? So there are these things <laughs> called libraries where you can rent books. <laughs> I could have I could have rented it from my library for free, but I went ahead and bought it. So it's, it's our did you copy. buy it or did you check it out? Right. So I I told you I bought it like a while back. Yeah. But anyways, so let's kind of wrap up here. Why? Well, before we get to that, why would you recommend it? One of the things that we're going to do for this podcast, if you listen to the first episode, is we choose a song <laughs> that kind of fits if we were making a film version or a soundtrack for this book. Do you have a song that you would choose? No. And I tried. I failed. And I think it's because it's so difficult to find a song, especially for like if we're talking about like a movie adaptation of it, that actually, I don't know, nothing that I've heard of really fits. Because it's very... The setting and everything is very gothic, very Victorian, but then again, if we're looking at it from a character perspective, it's extremely progressive, so you could use a lot more modern music and put more of a modern twist on it. And there weren't really any songs that I thought of that could describe Jane, I feel, in a very proper way. So one of the things that yeah. I kind of, one of the things I looked up, my first thought was Dessa's Fire Drills, which kind of deals with women empowerment and how women shouldn't be, um, the, the, the problems with the narrative and rhetoric that we say that women should always be vigilant. That should not be the case, even though we know that people should be vigilant. But I also thought about Lecrae's Dirty Water, which deals with kind of missionary work. 
right? And the problems of missionary work, not saying the missionary work is bad, but some of the inherent problems within kind of that. But I finally decided to kind of go, and I went on went on Apple Music and just typed in Riot Girl playlist. And Riot Girl, of course, is a punk genre. Started in the Northwest, Bikini Kill and Slater Kenny and bands like that, L7. Oh, wait, Riot That's like a right. genre? Right. Huh. So I just typed in Riot Actually, I think I typed in feminist punk anthems or something first, and then I typed <laughs> in Riot Girl playlist. And one of the songs that popped up was by a band called Party Line, and it's called Trophy Wifey from 2006 so it's it's very punky but it's basically dealing with kind of the things that jane's pushing back against and kind of the first part the intro says what will you do when you when they come for you what will you say when they take you away how can it be why can't you see this is what they're doing every day i know and it goes through and talks about kind of marriage and um i want to say who gives a because marriage sucks right so it talks about a woman or women having to fall into kind of the stereotype of getting married, becoming a housewife, all of this type of stuff, right? And they're like, no, that's not the case. So there are plenty of songs that kind of talk about that, but that was one of the reasons I kind of chose it. And I thought that since I'm very into punk, that that kind of fit. And I think one of the things, too, is like the whole thing that you were saying of like women shouldn't get married or be forced to get married, but at the same time, even even though I have very, I really don't like Mr. Rochester, she chose on her own, <laughs> she chose on her own will, and she decided that for herself, you know, she didn't let, I mean, she didn't let other people decide that for her. Yeah, I could, I don't, I don't want to, I, I could say that's a bad choice. I want to say, I want to, I don't want to tell her what to do, but it's a bad choice. It is a bad choice. So why would you? So let's end. Why would you recommend this book? Why would you recommend that somebody read this book? Um, there's a lot of things. So originally, when I first read it, I'd recommend somebody reading it. It's a really good. It has really good narration, really good pace, um, and it's also there's a lot of plot twists, and it keeps you engaged constantly. But sort of looking into this now from a more historical perspective. There is a lot of topics regarding religion and imperialism and Christianity and how it sort of gives you a further idea of what it was like during that time, especially in the mid-19th century. Um, but there's just a lot to unpack in 500 pages. So it can be something that you can either enjoy for pleasure and read it and thoroughly enjoy it, or you can read it and find so much historically and also find pleasure in that as well. So it's something that I feel like is good for pretty much everybody. I was thinking about that earlier. That <laughs> you can read books like this for pleasure, and there are reasons books like this are, so, are things like Shakespeare's work maintain, right? They're universal things. Yeah. But I think the thing that really got me and why I recommend it is, is one, those discussions of Christianity, because that really stood out to me, especially things I'm thinking about right now. But also it is, it's an early, I mean, maybe not an early novel, but it, it's not, it is kind of that first century or first century and a half of novels, for one. So it's dealing with all of that. It's also, which we didn't talk about, it is very gothic. Oh. And that was one thing that really kind of caught my attention, too, is that this is a very gothic kind of, dark may not be the right word, it is dark in places, but it is a very gothic text. Would you say it's, I wouldn't say it's ominous, though, either. 
I may say it's ominous. I mean, I'm thinking about Frankenstein. I think was a little bit earlier, earlier 19th century, and it's totally different than Frankenstein. Yeah. But I could see this totally in line with something like Charles Brockton Brown's Veland. He was an early American Gothic writer. I could see it in line with some of Poe's stuff. Yeah. And just kind of this imagery, right? And it's, it's not out of place within the 19th century. I see it in line with Hawthorne. You know, I haven't read Hawthorne in a while, but I see it with that. Is that the is that Nathan Hawthorne? Nathaniel Hawthorne, yeah. So I'm thinking it's been a long time since I've read it, but maybe the House of Seven Gables, Scarlet Letter, maybe. I mean, there there are definitely kind of connections there, and the Gothic deals with the repressed. It also deals with one of the things that the Gothic deals with, and I never thought about this until I started teaching the Gothic. Is it is a very conservative genre. The Gothic deals with what you're afraid of. Right? So, I don't, with Poe or somebody like that, it's the fear of slave revolts or the fear of black people or the fear of other things, right? Wait, really? Yeah, we could, if you want to do the short story Hot Frog, we can do that. Oh my God. But, anyways. And we just casually, like, read those in school? Yeah, but you don't talk about them in that context most of the time. But Jane Eyre, I don't see it as kind of a, there may be conservative aspects, everything about more, but very kind of pushing using the gothic in a different way i would say so kind of like charlotte gilman perkins Char- charlotte perkins gilman with the yellow wallpaper yeah. i also think of kate chopin's the awakening with this novel so you're basically saying that they took the stereotype of the gothic novel being a conservative thing of fear and turning it into something i would have to think about it more for that but I'm not, I'm not seeing the conservative kind of impulse here to maintain the status quo. Because one of the things Gothic does, too, is it uses fear to try and maintain the status quo. In this time, is it using fear of... It's using fear of the other, in most cases. That's what Dracula is. Dracula, and I haven't read Dracula, but, but I know that Dracula, of course, is the fear of East European, specifically Jewish immigration to Britain. That's what some of that is, right? So, Frankenstein, there's a lot of Islamophobic things in there. So, there are these, uh, there are these fears that run through Gothic that, while they may push some things one way, are very conservative. And horror, for the most part, is like that, too. That's why something like Get Out, or um, I just watched it, what is it? Um, they cloned Tyrone on Netflix. I think are really good because they're using the gothic to subvert and push back against those kind of conservative impulses in the gothic. That's a whole other conversation, though. But also, like, another thing, too, is this is one of... This is, like, the rise of female novelist writers, but at the same time, a lot of... Well, ones that we know of now that are still maintaining... So the early early American novels... I don't know about Britain. Like I said, that's not my thing. But the early American novels... They were writing late 1700s, around the Revolution, around the Constitution. They were publishing at that period. So this is not the rise. I mean, this is 50 years after kind of that start, right? So that concludes Chapter 2. This one's kind of lengthy. And we will be back at some point in the near future with Chapter 3. Do you want to kind of tease what we're going to read for Chapter 3? Is it it the one that I think it is? That I'm reading right now. It is the one that you should finish today or tomorrow. Okay, hopefully. okay. I wanted to make sure we were on the right one because it was either that one or another one. So, um, do, do we want to say what it is? No. 
Just just say it's you can you can you can give a little teaser if you want. So it has to do with France and Algeria and the United States. Maybe that's a teaser enough, I don't know. So thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for Chapter 3. Say goodbye, Juliet. Goodbye. <laughs>